these. Everything's I'm, I'm gold. I just, I just want these women to step on my back and cuck me. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me as always, well, he wasn't here last week because of weirdo Canadian Thanksgiving, which I still think is just bizarre. Peter's back. It's the real Thanksgiving. Yours is Columbus Day. Look, just because he was a rapist and a pillager, you don't have to bring that up all the time. Actually, I just did. Never mind, never mind. (laughs) Cecil won't be here because he's got the flu. I mean, he had a bachelor party last week, sort of, and he got the flu. I'm hoping Why that's did he not have a, a bachelor euphemism. Party so late, hasn't he been like married for a while? Well, it, it wasn't his bachelor party. He was going to a oh, friend's bachelor friends. party. Okay. So, yeah, it wasn't his bachelor party. But we his wife was on, on Facebook. I was happened. like, wow, that's one long overdue hangover. Yeah, at least with my bachelor party, it was the day before my wedding. My well, then not quite wife's uncle took me to a strip club and tried to buy me a girl. <laughs> okay, you know, it's like, you know, I'm marrying your niece tomorrow, right? Okay. Different values. It was the 90s, man. It was a different yeah. time. And so sitting in for CISO will be Fred. Hello, and I hope you enjoyed your traditional seagull, guitar. I thought you guys were like mooses and stuff. Yeah, that too, sure. If you guys want to help out the show, we have a Patreon, but we also ask you to go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. So this week, I want to look at, there are things when I'm watching movies that just piss me off from a script level. I want to look at some screenwriting tropes that really, really need to stop. What is something on a screenwriting level you are just sick of seeing in a film? People bitching about movies. Oh, wait, no, wait, that's We don't script Um, this. All right. One thing that annoys me, and this is going to be me personally, I think I'll lead with this one, because I don't think a lot of people are going to agree, and that's just time travel and the way it is used. Time travel is one of those things that I, I feel has become a, how do I want to say this? It's a, it's a fallback for science fiction. Science fiction has changed from its original meaning. It, it was literally sort of when it was originally created, they were all stories about what ifs, looking into the future of mankind and how science and our, our progress would change us, not just the change around us, but how it would change us. Now it's it's much more generalized. You know, what was considered sci-fi fantasy, like Star Wars, is considered more science fiction. Even Star Trek's not really Die hard science fiction. Not if you grew up reading it. It has those elements without doubt, but time travel is one of those things I, I've seen used over and over again where personally I get annoyed. I don't think it's clever. There was a movie, I think Cecil really liked it, so I apologize to anybody who liked it, but there's a movie called Time Crimes and I hated it. Everybody else liked it. I hated it. I thought it was dumb. I didn't think it was clever. Oh, the guy witnesses a murder, but because of time travel, it was him! Ah! You know, I, to me, that's not clever. It's, it's, it's 
something we've seen done a thousand times, and TV shows and movies just rely on it endlessly. I mean, even the new Deadpool ends with a time travel trope, and it becomes an easy out in the story for the characters. Oh, everything is fine. I feel like in the new Deadpool, though, it was just played as a joke. Well, I'm not necessarily... It was almost like it was making fun of the trope in a way. I agree, but it's also there. And the sad thing is not so much for Deadpool, but in general, that's how it's used now. It's like you just watch two hours of a story and everything is undone in the last five minutes. Just don't like that. I don't think it's clever. I don't think it's well done. And quite honestly, I wouldn't mind if it went away. I also think there, when it comes to time travel, there is a, a weird thing now. You know, everyone knows I always bitch about the tiny details that shouldn't matter in a, in a movie or a screenplay because no one takes into account the rotation of the Earth, the position of the Earth, how when something, you know, maybe if you time travel to 40 years ago, the parking lot that you're time traveling to was actually a building and you should appear inside a wall and all this. Closest movie I've ever seen that got it right was Prince of Darkness. They actually talk about how they figured out the rotation and the position of the earth to be able to time travel memories that's actually a clever way to do it quote-unquote realistic time travel i'd like to see a movie actually tackle that but a lot of people would go that'd be boring well if you want um a movie that kind of tackles it in much more of a scientific way i would check out primer oh i love primer yeah, that's a, that one really, it really goes into all like the realistic theories of what would happen. You'd have a double and like all this stuff that's like in a dip, you, you'd have to really plan everything out so you don't run into things and run into the ramifications of what could happen if you run into like your past self and stuff. Yeah, Primer is a, a really good example of that working well, but I can see a lot of general audiences being like, where's the DeLorean? Yeah, uh, I haven't seen Primer, but uh, Synchronicity from a couple of years ago with Michael Ironside mm. also was an incredibly realistic, it was not scientifically accurate, but it was probably one of the most scienti- scientifically accurate on film time travel movies out there. If it works for the story overall, I guess I'll be fine with it. I'm just, you, you say a trope and something, tropes aren't necessarily a negative in and of themselves. Stereotypes are the negatives. Tropes are just something you see a lot of. It's something you have to deal with. It's something you just have to work with. And, you know, real quick, I'll tie this in. It was another one on my list, but I know I've talked about it before. I feel the same way about, like, psychics. It, in I... This, I think, embodies what I mean with the time travel problem, is that psychics are just an excuse. They're not there for a clever reason. They don't have any actual... They, they don't serve a purpose as a person. They, uh, I'm just a psychic because... They can read everybody's minds. Automatically, you have too much power, so you have to throw in excuses why it doesn't work. Why Star Trek, every freaking third episode, I can't get through, Captain. There's something blocking me. Yeah, it's called well, bad Troy script was, writing. Yeah, Troy and, was useless to begin with, though. But that's my point. That's exactly my point. It's used, time travel is used in the same way psychics are. They're usually pointless. The one I've made fun of forever is species. Like I said, you know, he walks into a room full of blood on the wall. Something horrible happened here. Really? Boy, am I glad you're here. <laughs> pointless, uh, you mean like a pointless exposition? Pointless exposition. That's one I'm just... going to get to later. 
yeah, it's just there. And time travel is used very much in the same way. It could be done clever. It can be, you can even use it in passing. Like one of my favorite movies is Time After Time, where H.G. Wells' best friend turns out to be Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper steals his time machine. Now he's, he's responsible for releasing one of the world's killers into who knows when, and he has to go after him. And that's the end of the time travel. It just is them getting to a place, and then the rest of the story occurs. That's wonderful. I like that. I hate when they use time travel in a way that is just convenient. When Bill and Ted did the whole thing about, hey, let's go back in time and get your dad's keys, and then they fall, you know, right into their hands. It's like, that was a cute joke. Like what you said about Deadpool 2. It's just a cute joke. It's a throwaway gag. That's fine. Yeah. The problem is... Other movies started using it as actual plot devices. Well, yeah, because I don't think minor. I don't think the, with Bill and Ted that was meant to be like really scientific or meant to no, be like thought provoking. No. It was just meant to be fun. Same with like Deadpool too. It was like, oh, what if we could go back and like erase Green Lantern and stuff like that? Like it was just kind of a joke. But when yeah, it, I do no hate it when movies that. use it as like as like a convenient plot twist at the end. Like, oh, remember all this bad shit that happened for two hours? Oh, we can just go back in time. Yeah, well, it's over. Keeping with time travel, let, let's go to the screenwriting angle. This isn't time travel. One of my problems on a screenwriting level when it comes to this is something TV does this more, especially in a long-running TV series, but the movies do this too. The episode or the movie opens with an out-of-context, we have no context for what's going on, it's an out-of-context action scene, blah, 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 heroes put in danger and then everything pauses and then it jumps to nine hours earlier seven days ago or something like that and then the story begins proper and it's like oh my god that is the laziest way to try and get your audience interested in your episode i don't I know if i agree with that. that dude starship troopers starts like that and it's fantastic i can't stand when shows do this i can't stand I when think movies if they, do, if do the do x right, amount of uh, can... hours earlier I think if, if you do it right, that can work. I think it really worked in Starship Troopers where it starts with like the, the news thing and the recruitment video and then obviously the Klandathu invasion gone completely wrong and then it's like a year earlier or whatever and then you're like, you're actually kind of intrigued by like, by this world that you're, you're being shown and you want to see how it got to the point where it got because it's such a, such a grand scale of, of fuckery that's happened. You're kind of invested already. I, I think that can work, but I see where you're coming from. It also completely erases, especially if it's like a TV show or a movie franchise, it erases any tension. I, I had, I had a friend who had a really good screenplay. He let me read and it started with one of these and I tried to explain to him, okay, so you are going to spend the rest of your screenplay putting your character, your main character in danger. Yet you've already told us in the first minute of the film he's going to get out of every one of those dangerous situations. Do you see how that wrecks the tension for everything else in your screenplay? And he was like, you're right. It's like, no, I can't stand that. I hate seeing X amount of hours earlier. Unless the story is supposed to be told out of order, like with a Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs, that can totally work. In a general setting, X amount of hours earlier as a jump cut does not work and annoys the piss out of me. This is a little trickier because this, again, is a tool. It's like the flashback. They always say you can't use flashbacks. That's lazy writing. Not necessarily. You I can think, use yeah, if you can do it right, it can really work well. 
Yeah, you, you can do it in a way. I, I think what you're talking about uh, more in the negative is like, it's the reason I don't like prequels. I never like prequels. Prequels, we're talking on the lowest percentile of work because you know where all this is going. You know, that's the problem with the Star Wars prequels because ultimately we know where all this is going and there's nothing to be surprised on. Whereas if you went all the way back to the Knights of the Old Republic, then it's okay because you don't know these people, you don't know the events, that's fine. But when you know what's going to happen, yeah, I agree that it, it diffuses what you might enjoy. Like a movie I saw, Starship Troopers, by the way, great example. Or mm. one of my favorites, Albert Pune's Mean Guns. It actually opens up. You see all the bodies of the people in the game. They're littering everywhere, but you don't see their faces quite so well. And there you see Christopher Lambert holding the one guy strangled still in his hands. And you see a couple other people and the music's playing. And then we go back before the, the mayhem. I think it works in that film because it sets you up for you're about to watch a very bloody movie, mm-hmm. uh, ironically, with very little actual blood. But a lot of violence is about to occur. It sets a tone. It sets a mood. It can be done effectively, but I agree it can be misused. It can be very overdone for sure. Yes, TV, overdone. TV series do it a lot. I remember Battlestar Galactica, the the 2003 series. I think, I think it was season two. They did it so often that even the producer had to acknowledge, okay, we didn't even know we were doing this. There was like five or six episodes in one season. Remember, the season's only 13 episodes long that start with Starbuck in an exploding ship flying through space and then nine hours earlier. It's like, you're going to do this every single episode? Really? It's become a crutch at this point, people. You need to stop. Oh, well, I agree. I will agree in that particular case. Because, again, yes, it, it can become a crutch, especially in TV shows where we see a lot of this stuff very often. You know, it's sort of like the, the person – we start off with the person writing their memoirs. You know that the person that's writing the memoirs is going to be perfectly fine. But sometimes someone will throw a clever little twist. Even well, like American that. History X where it ends up uh, – it's not really narration – it's, uh, what is it, Daniel Vineyard's report. Well, and uh, narration was on my list, too. Narration is not necessarily bad. When narration is used right, I think narration works. Taxi driver. I, I, I'm even thinking, I know you're both going to disagree with me, I like the narration in Blade Runner. I think the narration in Blade Runner does help flesh certain things out. I'm not just talking makes the story easier to follow. I will always go back to that line about Bryant. We kind of get an implication that Bryant is kind of a jerk throughout the movie. Like when he uses the term skin jobs and Decker's got that piece of narration, Bryant is the kind of cop in the 1950s that used to call black men niggers. Mm. We didn't realize up to that point, and it's never made clear without the narration, that skin job is basically a racial epithet, that Bryant is a racist jackass. I feel like the narration is a little bit too, like, exposition-y and not really the fit of, like, a... Like, I oh, know some it's of the narration be, like, does de- not work. Detective. I'm not going ar- to argue with you, Peter. Some of the narration is, like, hitting you on the head with a hammer. Some of yeah. it does work. Uh, that's why I said not all of the narration. But narration to cover plot issues is something that really, really bothers me. Where somebody will jump over, say they forgot to film a scene that they need, but the characters have been narrating. Okay, well, we got this piece of the thing we needed off camera. Shut up. I really hate the shoehorned in love interests. Oh, no, I'm <laughs> I can't stand agreement. that. I can't f***ing stand yes. it. It doesn't matter whether whether it's a chick or a dude. I hate it when a movie is going 
really well on its own and they feel like they have to give the character a boyfriend or a girlfriend because they're too afraid of what audiences will go see it. And it's one of the reasons I didn't enjoy Deadpool as much as I wanted to, because I feel like giving him this like perfectly normal, healthy relationship kind of kills the character in, in a really big way because he's meant to be kind of a, he's meant to be funny, obviously, but there is like a tragic, lonely vibe to him. He's like a sad clown. And I feel like him having objectively attractive girlfriend that's always waiting for him at the end of the day. It's like, well, his life's not so fucking bad, is it? You know, he's acting like it is. Everybody's calling him ugly all the time, but he's got bitch from Homeland waiting for him at home. And the second movie especially did that too, because it's like, okay, well, she died. All right, fine. We, we're finally getting our the, the sad clown Deadpool that we were supposed to get. And then at the end of the movie, time travel trope, he uses that to, to get her back again. So it's just continuing with that. I, I feel like it's really lazy in the sense that I know why they're doing it. I know exactly why the studios are doing it, because they think women won't go see a superhero movie if if there isn't romance in it, if there isn't like a girlfriend in it or something, which is so absolutely asinine because at this point, I mean, not even at this point, for the longest time, it's been blatantly obvious that there are women that read comic books that love these characters, that love both male and female characters, and they're not going to go see a Deadpool movie because Deadpool has a girlfriend. They're going to go see a Deadpool movie because they want to see Deadpool. There's plenty, plenty of women that I know that really like the character, that have grown up on the comics, have been anticipating the film that have watched it and said he didn't need to have a girlfriend. It's like, this is completely pointless. And it is. It doesn't fit with the the context of that characterization. And it really does feel like the studio is is so so behind the curve, so behind the times in terms of what audiences are going to see their movies that they're like, oh, well, women will only go to see movies if there's like romance in them. So we need to give the action hero a girlfriend or like a wife. And it's like, no, you don't. If you want to write in a love interest, write one with with fucking substance to it. Like, there's good examples and bad examples. Obviously, Deadpool, I think, is a horrific example. But if you look at something like The Last Boy Scout, I feel like Bruce Willis is, I don't know, I don't I want to say ex-wife. I guess they're kind of in a struggling marriage. I liked her character. She felt like a real person, felt like their inter, their interactions organic. They've got a daughter together. Their marriage is struggling. He's working too much. She ends up sleeping around on him kind of out of out of loneliness, out of necessity. She regrets it. He's obviously pissed off about it, but he won't. He can't be emotionally open for whatever reason, likely due to his job. I, I feel like if you're going to have have a love interest, do something interesting with it. Do something with her or his character that, that makes them feel like a character and not just a plot device because you think people are going to go see this movie because they, they want to be like, oh, I love romantic stuff, which is so such like a stupid like 1950s mindset. It's like people are going to go see movies because they want to see them. They're, they're not going to go see them because they want every movie to be a rom-com. You know, women aren't that stupid. No, I, I absolutely agree because Last Boy Scout's a great example. You know, Sarah, if the cops weren't here, I'd spit in your face. When he does yell at her at the end, it actually feels right, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you feel like there's actually been a breakthrough. You you cared about him realizing he still does love his wife. But that was Shane Black when he was firing on all cylinders, though, too. Exactly. 
So but that's the but that's, that's the not the Shane Black we have like, anymore. If you're gonna have a love in, love interest, make him or her just as important as every other character. Don't just throw him in because it's like, oh well, we want women to go see Deadpool. Women will go see Deadpool. There are women that are like obsessed with Deadpool sexually for some fucking reason. They're gonna go see it. You, but you've also got the whole thing, vigilantes. I know it would be a trigger. I'm so sick of a vigilante movie. Always. They killed my wife. They killed my daughter. Can we have a different motivation for a vigilante? I am so sick of dead wife is why I'm doing this. That's why I like uh, Exterminator a lot. It's just you you killed my friend who helped me in Vietnam and, you know, saved my life. And now I'm going to take it upon myself to bring justice to the streets because you ruined somebody else's life, not necessarily my own. It's one of the reasons why I think Exterminator really stands out. By the way, they did they did actually make that movie. It's called Blue Ruin, and nobody went to see it, unfortunately. Oh, Blue Ruin's great. This one is really pertaining to screenwriting. might be a little more difficult to explain. I'll, I'll try my best. They're called roadblock characters. Again, this is something that could be used well. But I find that it's more of a lazy writing trope that, or even a stereotype in this case, where they use this type of character because they don't know how to slow down the hero. And I can give you two horror movie examples, one which I think is a good roadblock character, the other is a bad roadblock character. Let me give the bad first. You've seen this character a billion times, I promise you, and that's the nurse that won't allow it, whatever it might be won't let the person in to see you know the person in the bed or won't let the person in the bed out to see somebody you've seen it a million times the nurse that was going to stop that doctor that doctor's got an idea to help but no i'm going to stop you doctor you're a rogue doctor it's a roadblock character that's meant to slow our protagonist down think new nightmare okay remember the nurse in new nightmare like is vilifying Nancy or you're a bad mother and that you've seen this character a thousand times and nine out of 10, it is just lazy writing. It's, we don't know how to up the conflict. So they create a roadblock character that does nothing but slows it down. If you think about that character, new nightmare, she ends up serving no point, no purpose, All her actions add up to nothing in the story. That's why I hate a roadblock character. Now, Friday the 13th Part 6, you could say the sheriff is a roadblock character. But a good one. Well, that's where I'm leading. He's the good character. He's the good example. He's the father to the, 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 the main female in the story, the love interest, which not a very strong love interest, if we're honest. But still, there's a connection. There is the deputy who's another roadblock character, but you even have that great moment, oh, now you've done it, you made him pull out his laser targeter, he's been waiting to try <laughs> that. And I mean, it's funny, it serves a purpose, and you actually even care about the sheriff when he dies. These are good examples of writing roadblocks into a story that have their part of the story. So right there, any roadblock, those are just two, and by the way, there's a million bad, the, the evil sheriff that's stopping people, or you've seen it done a thousand times. There are so many, the parents that'll, you're grounded, mister, because you can't have the character just get out of the house right then and there. Yeah, like uh, in the, the first um, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, what is it, Johnny Depp's parents won't let um, uh, Nancy call up 
Because well, it's like yeah. 9 p.m. and it's too late or whatever. It's like, I, I, yeah, they that's hang up definitely on a roadblock character. That's a roadblock I, character. I, 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 I think a lot of what Fred is saying is accurate. Roadblock characters tend to be, and this is how you can tell when they're when they're not uh, used well in, in a screenplay, if you cut their scene, would it have effect to the story at all? No. Then they're not a good character. If you cut, you know, just Fred's example of, you know, the nurse who won't let someone in to see the patient that they need to see, if you cut that whole thing and just have the person coming into the room does it change the story no No? then that character is unnecessary and that's bad screenwriting it is and they're used a lot i'm going to talk since we're talking characters i just don't understand i'm going to go into maybe a little psychological angle of this why especially in horror movies it's not just horror movies but especially in horror movies why modern screenwriters think every character needs to be a f***ing asshole? You see this so much, like, not just in a Rob Zombie movie, but go through a Rob Zombie movie. Find me one character in any movie that's not a f***ing asshole. <laughs> and almost all horror movies are like this today. Back in the old slasher days of the early 80s, there was always an asshole character or something like that. The people who are making these movies now grew up on those. And they seem to think, let's make every character an insufferable asshole. Something weird happened in the 80s. Peter, you didn't live through it, but Fred, I'm sure you saw this happen organically the way I did. As you went on in a slasher franchise, the audience started rooting for the killer. I'm sure you remember by, like, Friday the 13th, 3 or 4, people were like, get him, Jason, get him! They were rooting mm-hmm. for Jason. Not what the movie wanted, which was you're supposed to root for the characters to get away from Jason. And I think that has somehow been perverted into, I can name you 30 horror movies I've seen in the last two years where every character is a f***ing asshole. And Cabin fever. They make it where you want <laughs> the killer to kill the char- to, to kill these characters. And it's hostile. Like, no, not not just hostile. I can name a dozen more. I said the, cabin fever as well. Yes. Well, anything <laughs> Eli Roth writes, he, he and Rob Zombie are probably the worst. But what is it about every character needs to be an insufferable asshole in a movie today? Why can nobody write a character I care about, on the other hand, without shoving, you are supposed to care about this character down our throats, which they do that sometimes too. If the movie doesn't end up being good, at least it'll be violent, and at least the people you see die, you won't really care about anyway. Like, I think it's just a real, it's like a lazy fallback tactic. In your day-to-day life, I'm sure you know people who are f***ing assholes. I'm sure one of them. Do you know every single person that you encounter is a fucking asshole? No. That th- That's what well, you would think if you watch these movies, though, that everyone in the world is like this. Well, if, if I may, I mean, it also ties into the concept of how it's written. Uh, I'm trying not to repeat myself, so let me think of a different example here. Because I was about to say that in Friday the 13th Part 2, there's the, the douche who we actually feel something for. But I've brought him up before. So he's actually let, not bad. Like, no, he's kind no, of an asshole, about. but he's charming in a weird way yeah he's charming and he dances with the dog it's kind of cute like let's look at escape from new york we don't exactly have a whole lot of like heroic lovable characters then you have to ask why do we love them all why do the deaths of those characters affect us now cabbie's easy it's ernest borgnine we love him but Mm -hmm. when brain dies any of them die we feel something and it's it's emotional all these characters are very unlikable they're all criminals they're all killers basically to some degree but we care and i 
think it reminds me of something I heard on Carrie versus Jason. Uh, my number seven, number seven. seven. Yeah, New Blood. The producer, we all know that she hated horror movies. We've all heard the story. She hated horror movies. They did the scene where the father comes back, grabs Jason, he looked like a zombie, and she demanded it be changed. That's why he looks less zombie-like. Well, another thing that was brought up was people like her who hate horror movies, and a lot of people in Hollywood hate them. It's a very, uh, the not to go too political, but the liberal mindset generally hates horror movies. Yeah. What they generally want is they don't want to see nice people die. We hate seeing nice people, so make them horrible people, so that way it's okay that they die. And thus, you have borne this this stereotype of these un not just unlikable unredeemable characters nothing in them i mean i'll give Zack snyder one piece of credit i saw the dawn of the dead remake just recently believe it or not i hadn't seen it that's yet. a good movie that's it's a okay. weirdly good movie it's okay but the one character the uh the detestable guy the security guard a classic jerk they actually give him a chance to redeem himself most modern horror stories that wouldn't be he would just be the jerk he would be the redneck i'm in control because i got the gun he'd be that character actually let him change they actually let him grow i was shocked i'm generally i mean i was shocked that's what's missing you you don't see the human side even there are horrible villains that we've seen the 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 human side to them where you you discovered they loved someone and lost them and that's what set them on a path that's it i don't feel these kids we see in these movies are human they're written just as you see them and you just don't you just don't believe it part of this goes back to i think a misunderstanding of tony soprano because this really started right after 1999 because the sopranos tony soprano's murdering people he's sexually assaulting women partially due to gandolfini's performance but also due to the writing the audience was still able to see things in Tony Soprano they could like. And he became a likable bad guy. And I mean a bad, bad guy. And then I think that got sort of perverted over time. You look at a show like Shameless. These are the worst human beings on the planet Earth, but the series keeps hitting you over the head. You're supposed to like them. You're supposed to side with them. It's supposed to be funny that they're horrible and we're making I you really like them. I really don't like that show. I, find, and, I don't even find them to be bad people. I just find them to be, like, annoying people. Well, I, Like, they're I, the I, kinds of people I would fucking hate hanging out with. And I, But I think this is, goes to that misunderstanding of the Tony Soprano thing. How many movies do you have, the gangster or something, that are just unredeemable psychopaths? And you just go, why do you want me to like this villain? Why do you want <laughs> me to like this main character here? There's they, a thing of, like, you can make a character that's, like, so... Over, like so bad and so badass and kind of evil that he ends up being cool. Like that works, but there's, there comes to a point where there's not enough of a, what, what would it be? Like there isn't enough there for him to be redeemable enough. Like I, I feel like, I feel like they tried to make bring breakers. I think they tried to make James Franco like the likable bad guy. And he was just a fucking annoying douche that I wanted to punch in the dick. Well, okay, Peter, I'm going to go back to American history X that you brought up earlier. Derek has done horrible things in that movie. And we see why we're supposed to like him. You feel for him. Yeah. Also, I think one thing a lot of movies, and this could be more to casting than screenwriting, is when a villain, even if they're unredeemable, if they are charismatic, they sort of put you under a spell. Their charisma overrides their evil. 
when you've well, got any time like bland like, actor, um, like actors like Michael Ironside or Walton Goggins or something, if they play a villain, they somehow make them likable just through their charisma alone. Walton Goggins on Justified is a horrendous person, mm-hmm. but you tell me, and I know Fred will back me up, that he's not a fascinating character. Well, it, that's it. You, you bring in an actor who can add depth and dimension to a character that normally wouldn't have it and you allow them to do the job they were hired to do then yeah you you get a character that i mean justified might be a bad example just because you have multiple story arcs and it goes on for so long and you get to know these people you know and it's those subtleties in each character because rayford does some pretty bad things too and you always see how close walter goggins character could get to being a good man and you could see how close rayford gets to being a evil man and it's only these little moments that end up separating the two of them and that's why it's fascinating and that's just good rayford. writing uh sorry what did i say you said rayford it's raylan givens yeah forgive me i don't know why i said rayford <laughs> that, that's uh, why i was confused for a moment i'm like am i thinking of a different character i, I do that from time to time I, I apologize everybody it's just a little bit too much of the old moonshine essentially yeah the idea is that there's writing that's already there there's something on the page that's already there you hired people that can act you're you know come on you're golden no hail mary pass required horror movies tend to by their very nature be very generic they they start with stereotypes it used to be they hired these things called let me think what are they called oh yeah actors these mythological unicorns could bring this thing like nuance and performance and what's that other word oh yeah empathy to their roles they were hired and they were allowed to do their job today you have there were visionaries we're i'm a visionary and i want you to do it exactly like it's on the page and i want you to look where i tell you to look say what i want you to say and there's no back and forth you hear this a lot you see this a lot and they they hire mannequins to to perform these these roles on top of that. So oh god, you get just a decent- look up any clip from that uh, that that Riverdale show. It's disgraceful. Oh. A perfect example is Network. I know Fred's not a big fan of it, but the movie Network. Faye Dunaway's character is borderline psychotically evil as a network programmer, and there's one moment that Sidney Lumet allowed her to show vulnerability. Because he said, I do not want her to be vulnerable. I want her to be almost cartoonishly evil in this otherwise realistic setting. When her boyfriend leaves her, she's yelling at him, you know, I don't need you and everything. And she goes to get a thing of tea and her hand is shaking so much that she gets pissed at herself for actually letting him get to her. And it's a brilliant acting moment of this villain actually does have feelings, even though the movie has portrayed her as being almost an emotionless robot who only cares about ratings. Brilliant acting moment. Well, ultimately, and this will be my last thought on it, is that these are not real people. These are characters. They're fiction. And their purpose is to make us feel. That's it's us what we read into them, okay? Why can we forgive Darth Vader and Return of the Jedi? Because I've heard people say, oh, he's unredeemable. Because it's about us. We've gotten to know him. We've we've known him and all these characters for several years. And by the end of it, you you, you kind of side with Luke. You you go with Luke and he has a redeemable moment and it's a great moment. That's life too. You know, everything isn't perfect. There's no 
perfect justice in this life, okay? There's no, the villain gets exactly what they deserve and the hero gets exactly what they deserve because it depends on when you knew that person at what time in their life. Five years ago, the hero could have been the villain and, you know, vice versa. Good writing brings that out in us. It brings out those moments. It brings out those feelings. Why? Johnny Five is not alive, people! R2-D2 is just a, is a trash can on wheels that goes beep, beep, beep. We feel something because we bring it with us to the theater. I mean, and of course, it's, it's brought together by good writing, good performances, you know, editing, music. All these things work together to make us feel something. So like you said, Tony Soprano, I think people were surprised that they started feeling something because again, you had a good actor performing it. We used to love our teddy bears even though they weren't alive. This is a human component. It's something that's just in us and good filmmakers can bring that out in us. That could be the simple answer is just we don't have those good filmmakers doing it. Good filmmakers and actors for sure. I mean, I don't actors, know how yes, I you guys yeah. feel about this particular movie, but I, I feel like even though his character is meant to be former criminal killer, kind of a piece of shit and stuff, I feel like, um, Mel Gibson's character in Payback is weirdly likable because he's just such, like, it's such a, a level of like badass that even though he's done like shitty things, like you're still rooting for him it's also yeah. mel gibson who is it's also mel gibson charismatic but that's like too. that one is um even for like mel gibson that was a f-ing cool movie and you're not well, i don't think you're supposed to like his character but i i did well what about because we were talking about screenwriting and these horrible characters some of that comes down to the dialogue great dialogue can really endear a character to you or push them away from you I am so sick of terrible dialogue in movies. First, you have the whole, as you know, I am so... Oh, yeah, the info dump. The the forced exposition dump. Okay, if I know this, then why are you giving me a total exposition? Oh, because the audience needs it, because the screenwriter wasn't smart enough to find a way to get this information in there earlier. Which also goes to laying in plot twists for later, like, like Repo Men, when they specifically mention the thing way earlier seemingly casually that will turn out to be the plot twist you know MacGuffin at the end it's like the conversation about that object was so out of place i'm like okay that's going to become important later you see something like a character at the beginning of a movie is just learning to play the piano well you know that that that's going to become a plot point later that they need to know you know the the mobster is going to kill them if they can't play moonlight sonata good thing that they just learned how to do that or Mm -hmm. they're in pilot training oh look the world's ending but we can steal a plane because i know i now know how to fly this plane i'm so sick of those lame setups it's it's not organic and i think the worst problem Probably when it comes to dialogue, though, is the Joss Whedon, James Gunn style. Every single character talks in quips and snark. Uh, James you, Gunn does it better than Whedon, though. At least you go, Gunn you will go add... Any James Gunn I, mean, I don't... Look, I know you don't like him, but I feel like Gunn has a far better way of dealing with emotional moments than um, Whedon, who is literally just... Joke, 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 joke every fucking five seconds. I feel I'm like James Gunn the is moments. the superior writer. I'm just, I'm talking about specifically the dialogue. Go look at, let's just take the Guardians movies. Every single line of dialogue from one of these characters is a snarky quip. And you're like, seriously, James? That's the only way you can make these people talk? Is in snark? I like Guardians of the Galaxy. I think you're, you're judging it on merits it doesn't need to have. Like, it's meant to be, for the most part, uh, a colorful face opera action film with, with moments of, 
like emotional tension, which, which it had, at least in my opinion, it did. But I, I wasn't going in there expecting like deep fucking, uh, gravity levels of, uh, dialogue. I was, I went in there to see like Chris Pratt and Batista and a, and a talking raccoon in a tree fight aliens. I can't stand that kind of dialogue. Go back, and I know you said you haven't seen the first Sicario, but I know Fred has. Look mm-hmm. at the dialogue in Sicario. It's witty. At the same time, it comes across as, I actually think this character would speak like this. It doesn't come across as a quip, but it also comes across as, that was a clever line of dialogue. You mean like it would kind of remind you of somebody in in real life that you know that's like actually witty, as opposed to written witty? You can tell like, okay, I like some of Tarantino's dialogue, but it all is so scripted. You can tell this is all written and they have to read it exactly as Tarantino wrote it. Sometimes the wittiness comes across as scripted and that you don't get that in day-to-day life. Like I said, go back to Sicario. James Brolin has a lot of great one-liners in that that don't come across as one-liners because they come across as natural. Well, I I would just like to throw in that, uh, because I was going to bring up Tarantino, that I think he's a better example. Like, comparing Guardians of the Galaxy to Sicario is not a fair comparison. No, that's not not fair at all. They're they're too very, again, he's he's, um, he's charging the film for merits they don't need to have. Well, it's, it's, it's unfair, and also I think you have to accept, and if you look at a movie like old classic movies, which everybody knows now, I think I love. I love the old detectives, the old gangsters, even some of the old comedies. And the way those people talked is not how human beings talk. It was it was rhythmic. It was patterned, and it was amazing. It, it, it's like a steak dinner if you're really into dialogue. I could watch the Maltese Falcon a thousand times and never grow tired of that movie because of the dialogue. A more modern-day film that brought that back was Miller's Crossing. They tried to kind of recapture that feeling, and that's why I love it. But there are other films that have been doing that, too. Guardians is not supposed to be real. These are not supposed to be characters in respects to, like in Sicario, where what if you followed this cop? She entered a darker world than she ever did. I mean, the final line of that movie sums it up, that you're a lamb and this is a world full of wolves. That's what Sicario is about. Dialogue, the characters all lead to that moment. Guardians is an adventure with a bunch of rogues go on an adventure and save the world. It's it's meant to be fun and joyous and their dialogue and their it, it's repartee. It's boom, 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 boom. It's back and forth. Tarantino, who I do have a problem with, he does kind of the same thing. When he does it well, it works great. And here's where I think your point does have validity. The problem is, is that when they don't do it well, like I, I'm sorry, everybody, I did not like Django because the characters came off horribly false and I wasn't having fun. Every character talks like they're in a Quentin Tarantino movie. That's where I start to have the problem. For me, that's when the disconnect occurs. You know, Star-Lord was Star-Lord, and Rocket Raccoon was Rocket Raccoon. Mm -hmm. But in this other film, I didn't see these as unique individuals, characters going on their own journeys. I was pulled out. And those type of films, it happens. Maybe it's just a personal bias. Maybe for you, it's Guardians. For me, it's Django. Tar, it's another film. You know, if for you're me, not buying it, you're not buying it. It's uh, Dark Knight. There you honestly, go. That's actually, it. honestly, the whole Christopher Nolan Batman series. I think they're incredibly well-constructed films on a technical level. I think they have some really fine action sequences. And I think Heath Ledger did a fantastic job as a Joker. Um, I think Liam Neeson was was great as Rasha Ghoul. And I like Tom Hardy as Bane. 
But here's the pitfall that all three of these fucking movies have. Horrendous info dumps all the time. Info dump, info dump, exposition. Explain how this works. Explain how that works. I think that that's a trope of Christopher Nolan because you look at all of his films. Well, that's a trope, trope like of that. um, more than the screenwriter who was God. He wrote Blade as well. David Goyer. Goyer. David Goyer. That's his thing. He seems to. He he even admittedly, um, I think it was for the commentary on Blade, admitted that screenwriting that he's he's only good at getting characters together together and structuring scenes and, and moments and sequences, but that he's not great with actual interaction, which and he allowed Wesley Snipes to kind of he would he would just come up on set and there'd be nothing in the script and he'd be like, Wesley, what do you think Blade would say here? You can just go ahead and say that. Like that's to me, that's the sign of, of a fucking pretty shitty dialogue writer. The entire making it up as you go along thing is a problem in movies. The the whole ad-libbed movies thing, like Judd Apatow films, lots of Will Ferrell films. When you make up a movie as you go along, it's never good. I mean, mm-hmm. even something like Ghostbusters to a degree was like that, but there was oh, still no, a structure. It was entirely. Paul Feig was like, these girls are so witty and so funny. I'm just going to let them say whatever they want. No, I'm talking, I'm and talking they, about and the, they the clearly original. weren't ready for it because nothing was funny in that movie. Amen. No, I, I, I'm referring to the original 84 one. Oh. A lot of that movie was ad-libbed, but if you look at all of the deleted scenes from the 84 Ghostbusters, in the editing room they decided, okay, a lot of this doesn't work and we're cutting it. Whereas Paul Feig was like, this is gold. It's just such gold. And I'm just so sick of ad-libbed movies. Everything's I'm, I'm gold. I just, I just want these women to step on my back and cuck me. I, uh, like, whoops, <laughs> did I say that out loud? Hee <laughs> hee, go see Ghostbusters. Well, I, I hope, because I, I, I'm almost positive I did this, the Ghostbusters rant on a previous episode, but yeah, I, I actually agree with that because Ghostbusters is a great example of, I think, the Im- improper use of this concept of improv comedy. I know we've talked about this, so, uh, but it's, Improv comedy is not necessarily just two people making everything up. Now, I know improv by its nature, the word means that. But improv comedy is generally about something. It has a point. It's why scenes from a hat works. Have you ever watched Whose Line Is It Anyway? They give them something everybody's familiar with, and that's why the jokes generally work, because they're, they're stereotypes. That's meant to, that's why it works, because you're dealing in things that everybody knows. You start talking about science, and especially things like quantum physics, it gets a little harder to come up with any quick off-the-cuff repartee, and so left with queef jokes. Ghostbusters had a script. It was rewritten about 800 times, but it had a script. Some of the improv left in the film. A lot of it cut out. The new one, almost entirely improv. Those actresses, I'm sorry, I say what you will, but they never stood a chance. No, I don't care who it was. If you took the original four guys in their heyday and just said, okay, let's make up an entire movie about science fiction and ghosts, they'd have been screwed. They'd yeah, have absolutely. been screwed. And that's why this new one didn't work. Plain and simple. They're talking about nothing. 
That's true. Now, I, I, I'm going to contradict myself in one aspect. I can think now and then, like I said, with the original Ghostbusters, even though they cut a lot of the stuff, some of that improv worked. Look at the Miami Vice episode, Out Where the Buses Don't Run. Now, it had a script and a structure, but Bruce McGill came into it. His character was supposed to be wacky and crazy. He didn't follow the script when it came to the dialogue. He was ad-libbing it. It really gives the whole episode this... There's a reason it won multiple Emmys, that episode. Out Where the Buses Don't Run, Bruce McGill is amazing in it. And you can see numerous times, because he's supposed to be making Crockett and Tubbs uncomfortable, the actors are uncomfortable because they don't know what Bruce McGill is going to say. And it works in that case. But I think that's a rarity because, well, Bruce McGill is a professional. He was still following, because the way he put it was to the director, I'm going to make up my own dialogue, but none of it will get in the way of the story. It won't change the story elements. So he was still going within the script, just making up the wacky things he was saying. And to a degree, and you may call this a detriment, if you watch that episode, keep watching Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas when Bruce McGill is on his rants. They're trying not to laugh. You can see the actors a few times desperately trying not to laugh at him. Yeah, but they're following a script that, again, that's structured. He he was allowed to function within that. He understood that if Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas and him were all making it up as they went along, you would have had a much different episode. Man shoots alligator. Alligator shoots man. <laughs> that's the one I remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's the scene I always remember. That, that was also ad lib too, and you can you can see the what the. F- on Don Johnson's face too when they cut to him. <laughs> I love the fact that they actually left that that shot in too. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's a good episode. You know, you you, the, you always hear this thing about humor that humor will you know lessen the tension of like a horror movie or an action film or a depressing film. I personally can't stand it when a film like The Road or some film that's supposed to be depressing, it's supposed to be heavy, throws in jokes. Because the producers are like, well, the audience needs a release. No! Horror movies don't need jokes. I'm sick of jokes where there doesn't need to be one in a movie. Misplaced humor is one of my biggest screenwriting faux pas. No misplaced humor. Stop it. Everything doesn't have to have jokes in it. I agree with that. I mean, it depends on... It, it all goes back to, obviously, the performers um, and the writers... But there are movies that just feel off when there's like humor randomly interjected into it, or you feel like the movie doesn't know what it wants to be, which is one thing I enjoy about the works of, say, Panos Cosmatos or um, Nicholas Reffin. When he makes his movies, there's a general vibe of, of his stamp on the film. Like if you watch something like Bronson or, or Drive or Only God Forgives, or if you watch Panos' films like uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow or recently Mandy, there, there's a certain tone throughout the film and they don't try to get you with a wisecrack or a one-liner or something to be like, oh, let's, let's lighten the mood for a second. It's kind of just what the character does is what the character is going to do. Nothing feels shoehorned in or even, um, S. Craig Zoller with, um, Bone Tomahawk and, and Brawl in Cell Block 99. They're, the movies are weirdly over the top and they feel a, a bit like otherworldly uh, or even cartoonish at times with the, with the level of gore, but the performances in the films, the actors are taking it so seriously that you're still 
invested in what's going on, even though it's full of all this like ultra violence, especially with with uh, Brawl and Cell Block 99, which which I think is an incredibly underrated performance from Vince Vaughn just to begin with. But I mean, th- these are movies that if you were to put a James Gunn style quip or one liner into it, it would fucking ruin it. Like it would ruin the entire the entire point of the movie. It would ruin movies like 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 drive and bronson and stuff like that there's just there's no point it doesn't need the little haha that was funny thing like the movie's gonna do what it's gonna do and you need to to let it do that and let it stay its course because that's what makes it work it's it's sort of not the same thing but like like with the blumhouse you know the bagul scare oh god yeah where you know they, they always throw that in because the audience needs a release from all the tension no, they don't. The whole point was the tension, you assholes. Yeah, let them sit. Let them sit in that tension. That's what made. That's what makes Prince of Darkness so fucking scary. That movie, to me, Prince of Darkness, when it ends, it feels like when you wake up from a, a really fucked up nightmare that like bothers you for the rest of the day. And that's what a horror film should make you feel. It. it this is an obvious yes. I mean, it, it's the you know before we kind of went off on a tangent and we started to go a little bit too much into you know we moved away from a. Tr- and we got into just the concept of bad writing. Now I think what we're talking about more is is tonal shift. And John Carpenter's, who I would always go to as a great example, where you have someone who builds a world. They they have a tone. He was greatly inspired by a lot of the Italian filmmakers, which again, look at Dario Gento. Go check out Deep Red. Go check out Suspiria. I think they're better examples of saying, yeah, quipping in those wouldn't fit it's it's a nightmarish journey into this very dark world in any of those films if you just started having i mean oddly enough in prince of darkness they have uh dennis dunn the asian character begins cracking a lot of jokes but, but that's just his character his, like it, it no, works i'm agreeing i'm i was about to say yeah that's part of his character it's not these hey 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 and you know and he's even doing jokes about being asian and the oh i love that one asian, he, he says to the chick he's mad like at him the, the very very like a uh, bookish um Asian chick in the movie that he's opposite to. He, I think he tells her something like, anyone ever confuse you for being Asian? Yeah. <laughs> Which and, I thought was really funny. Yeah, it, it's basically just... It felt natural. Like it world. felt like something... If you met that that character, that's what he would be like. Like kind of a, a sarcastic guy, but it feels... It's a natural flowing sarcasm. Well, it makes you feel something for them. People tend to confuse that concept of humor and feeling something for a character. Uh, it works in Prince of Darkness because it worked for that character. Again, if you were to do and that plus, in Suspiria, once, once shit starts going weird. south in that movie, nobody's making jokes anymore. Well, no, because and that's everybody's the point. terrified. You yeah, you care about them. You care about what happens, and it's just a run from that point on. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't fit. So, yeah, that's it. You, inappropriate jokes can ruin any movie and i wish i could think i was desperately while you guys were talking there was a movie just this year it did not know what it wanted to be and i can't remember what the heck it was but it was just all over the map i didn't know if it was horror or humor it just was totally wrong and i just can't think of what the heck the movie was not a new movie but the one i always go to is hollywood vice squad from the 80s the carrie fisher movie that movie doesn't know whether it wants to be a hard look at you know cops and the sex trade or a wacky comedy because it's sort of episodic. You'll have Carrie Fisher's story, which is about under uh, underage child sex slavery. And then the next story is about wacky hookers and the jobs that come to them. And there's even a wah-wah in the soundtrack. And then it'll go back to this hard story about child pornography. And then, oh, they're 
we're in a wacky car chase. And you're like, okay, movie, you really need to pick a tone here, you know? Yeah, at least in that case, though, we know that the movie started as a sort of spiritual sequel to Vice Squad. And so it was supposed to be gritty. And then, like, they stopped filming for whatever reason. I cannot remember what it was. And they didn't film, like, for about a month. And when they started up again, like, there was, like, a whole new showrunner, a new producer or something on it. And that's when it turned into the wacky adventures of the Asian cop and his buddy. I look at Hollywood Vice Squad, and I'm just like, you really need to pick a tone. Because I'm... you get the feeling of dread and and anguish in the child pornography storyline and then the wacky john dressed as a clown honking his horde while he's running from the cops with the wah, 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 wah music and you're like what the hell are you movie and there are way too many films nowadays that do that you'll have horror films that have just out of nowhere comedy segments and then the guy gets stabbed in the head and i think the filmmakers think haha we got you you thought this was going to be a comedy thing but he just got brain And it's like, no, you didn't get me. You're not as good at this as you think you are. I'm sick of the screenwriting tropes. I'm sick of bad writing. Screenwriters or studios need to pick better scripts. And I think there are way too many bad screenwriters currently working in Hollywood right now. Screenwriters need to hustle. They need to have a bit of that, bit of that kick in the ass warehouse mentality. Work fucking harder. Screenplays are a blueprint. And they always have been and they always will be. And how many times can I say it? You, you need a story. You need characters. And I think the issue is they, they write these things and they don't give them time to sit, you know, and bake a little while. They don't give them the time to grow and change. They write it. It goes right from the typewriter right to a film. And it, it has no time to grow and develop and change. And that's probably the biggest reason why there's all these mistakes being made is it's it's just being written and then being filmed. And these things need a little bit more time uh, to bake in the oven. They need a little more time to grow. And, you know, you shouldn't start filming until you know what this movie is. And mm-hmm. that's all I can say to that. Well, you know what we do know? Where we can find the Peter. Where? Where can we find me? I'm gonna, I'm gonna test you now. We've been doing I this think... show how many years now? Uh, just like the Adam and Eve thing. <laughs> where can you find the Peter? I think he's at Zinematica on Twitter. That's right. He has, he has a weird Facebook name right now that I, I can't pronounce because he keeps changing his Facebook name, but he's on that. He's on 1201beyond.com. He has a Patreon because he likes to e-bag. Did I miss him? That's anything? right. I like, I like food. Hey, I'm the same way. Go to my <laughs> Patreon or you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can find me at 1201beyond at gmail.com. I'd like to eat as well. If everyone who listens to this show donates $1 a month to the Patreon, I might be able to get a computer that's from this decade. <laughs> and Fred is still kind of off the grid at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm still in the shelter under the bridge. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. <laughs>
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.